Um, I think my sex ed experience was like pretty much non-existent. I, I don't recall any sex ed really. Uh, maybe in high school there was a crash course on STIs. The only thing that I really remember was some guy coming in who I would have sworn he would have been about like 30-something, reckons he was 50-something, and the reason that he was looking so young was because he had abstained from sex. I remember a lot about masturbation, I think. I went to a private Christian school, sex ed, it didn't exist. It's more of a way to like scare you out of having sex. Mostly we watched uh, Degrassi, The Next Generation, and that's how we learned. We watched episodes and episodes of them, and we even had quizzes. For Rewire.News, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. If you're just joining us, this is the fourth episode in a series, so please go back and listen from the beginning. Like many of the people we heard from, I didn't have comprehensive sex ed in school. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Okay, everybody take some rubbers. Not all states require schools to teach kids accurate information about their bodies, and some parents prefer it that way. Some parents view their children as pure, and that means asexual. Nicolette Pavlovsky is a sex educator with more than 10 years' experience and a PhD in educational policy from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It's devoid of connection to their bodies and and other relationships outside of the family. And that's just not the reality. And to censor information about what youth could potentially do, whether or not it's something that a parent wants them to do or not, it's about dealing with not ideology, but reality, um, and meeting children where they are at, um, and, and giving them the tools necessary, whether or not they stay absent till marriage, they need these tools even after they're married. In the last few episodes, we heard how parent-child communication can really start to break down when it comes to sex. Today, we're going to hear how the schools are doing. Nicolette decided to teach sex ed because she had such bad experiences with it when she was younger. As a freshman in high school, uh, there was a speaker that came in for one day, and she was an abstinence-only speaker. And I remember her pretty vividly, especially what she said. Um, In addition to some shock and awe kind of exercises um, or presentation, uh, she ended her class by saying that her husband could truly, truly loved his sons because he waited to have sex until he met her and, and they got married. Right? Um, so his, her whole statement was, my husband truly loves, can truly, can look straight into the eyes of his sons and say he truly loves them because he waited for me. So I was 13, 14 at the time. And I got extremely upset. I wasn't even sexual yet at that point, but I had been in love. Um, and, and to me, her words were really just offensive, saying basically my feelings weren't real and legitimate. Um, and they were very much so to me. Then later on, I realized that she basically told 90% of the class um, whose parents had never married or had sex before marriage 
or were on their second marriages or were divorced or were separated or whatever it was, but basically they'd been lied to their whole lives and their parents didn't really love them. So it was such a horrible presentation that I actually wrote about it for my grad school essay and application to get into grad school. So that was kind of a big moment for me. I was back in December visiting. Um, I'm born and raised in Chicago. I was visiting family. And every year, almost every year, I come uh, back to Whitney Young for a alum uh, Christmas uh a gathering which one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Scotes, um, does a reading of a Christmas story by Truman Capote. And he does it the last day of before their winter break. And and lots of different his alums come back and we just sit and listen to the same story. He's been doing it for like 20 something years. So um, I walked around the school and I went downstairs to talk to Dr. Kenner, who's the principal, and say hello to the assistant principals. And um, it was the first time that I got to go, Dr. Kenner, Dr. Pavlovsky, you know, so it was a really cool moment. And I started talking to the assistant principal, who is um, Lynn Allen, Miss um, Allen, uh, and I just started chatting about why I, I did my PhD and what I do now. And I told her that I'm a sex educator and I go around and teach and I've done that for many years. And so she got really excited and she thought this would be an amazing opportunity to offer some programming for the youth um, in the school. So she talked to Dr. Kenner. Dr. Kenner was completely on board. The state of Illinois has particularly equitable sex ed laws. Illinois law states if any school teaches any sort of information about sexuality, including abstinence, it must, it must cover comprehensive sex ed, including birth control information, sexually transmitted infection information. Joyce Kenner, the school's principal, says that the students have been asking for more sex ed programs, so she was excited about the possibility of having Nicolette present. Uh, I've known the speaker all through her high school years. I would tease her all the time and say, you need to go model. She's just, she's beautiful. She used to come down to the main office. She was pleasant, respectful, um, articulate, uh, and academically focused. And so when she got her degrees and she shared with us what she was doing, I, I jumped at the opportunity for her to come back to speak with her fellow um, students of Whitney Young because she had experienced um, this high quality of education here at Whitney Young. But not all the parents were thrilled. Uh, my name is Sally Wagonmaker. So I am a mother of two children. I have a son who just turned 20, and I have a daughter who is 17. My son uh, went to Whitney Young Magnet High School from 7th to, eighth to, 7th to 12th grade, and my daughter uh, has done the same. She's now a high school senior. Um, so I found, first found out about the sex ed um, workshops to be offered uh, through the Sunday night general Whitney Young um, uh, email. And they said there will be a um, presentation for the 7th and 8th graders Tuesday morning, which is less than 48 hours later. There will be another presentation for 11th and 12th graders the following Tuesday, so nine days later. So I have a, a running buddy I met the next morning to exercise with, and she has children there as well. And she said, you know, I looked that up, and it seemed a little odd. So I get home at 6.30, and then I found uh, her website and this connection to her college, apparently her college um, uh, column at the um, apparently the University of Wisconsin Badger Herald, her column called Hump Day. I started reading these articles 
basically um, strongly advocating promiscuity. She had an article saying uh, advocating for hookup sex, talking about if you're going to have sex while you're drunk, make sure that you know how to put your condom on. From what I understood initially was that this one parent, um, and her name, uh, her last name is Wagon Maker, um, she found my sex columns. I used to write for uh, a student newspaper at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the Badger Herald, um, when I was a master's student there. And, um, and this was with several other sex educators. And we, we rotated the columns amongst us all. Um, and I wrote for it for about two years, and, and I started getting very busy with my PhD work, so I ended up stopping um, with that work. But um, they're public. I mean, it's on my bio. I have nothing to hide. But these are specifically college-age youth um, and real questions. All those questions that you see on all those columns are real questions that people emailed us. And my editors, you know, chose, slightly. I would say, slightly more eye-catching titles than I would choose. Um, but, you know, all my answers are based off of people writing in talking about um, the realities of what they're dealing with with their sexuality. This just seemed bizarre, um, advocating pornography. So I talk about pornography, and, and I've talked about it in my sex columns, and I will even bring it up um, in workshops because the majority of information that youth get on sexuality is mainstream porn. And I want to highlight mainstream porn because there's some wonderful pornography out there. Um, and it's wonderful as in, I define it by that it shows consent, it shows communication, it shows um, condom usage, it shows both the woman and man um, orgasming and having pleasure throughout the entire um, entire scene. Um, mainstream pornography, for majority of it, is fantasy-based. The majority of men are orgasming, the women are not. Or they are, or they're shown orgasming, as in expressing emotions or expressing facial features of um, orgasm, but they are actually not. Um, there's very little condom use. There's very little communication at all. A lot of it can show kind of uh, aggressive or sexually harassing um, uh, actions. If this is your only outlet and information on education about sexuality in the body. And there, were, there was a study I saw that cited that by the time that the average age of pornography exposure, and this was several years ago, several years ago, I, I would bet you anything, it is so much younger, but it's the age of 11. By the time you are 11, and probably younger, mainstream pornography has been seen and digested by the majority of youth. If that is your main form of education, then it is no wonder that we have such enormous problems about sexual assault and, and enormous problems um, in bullying and, and rape in this country. Um, there needs to be other avenues for that. I'm not, I'm not here to sit and judge and say porn is wrong. I think if, if you are moderately using it and you are um, in, in collaboration with your partner and discussing this and being open and, and consensual about that, whatever it is. But if this is your only, if this is the only consumption that you have is mainstream pornography and that's all you're basing your relationships on, then that is a problem. 
this makes no sense to me that she's about to teach seventh and eighth graders. At the time, I didn't know what the law was. I didn't know what the Chicago Public Schools policy was on any of this. I just thought it was really odd. She emailed Principal Kenner. And she emailed me within a few hours later. And it was a one-liner. And the first word was, wow, exclamation point. I said, I will follow up. I do remember an email from her saying, I went to the 7th and 8th grader presentation. Everything was age appropriate. Uh, I even sat in on one of the sessions that she had. And in my mind, I said, dang, I, th- I think she needs to be a little bit more specific. You know, she, <laughs> she was more vague than I thought that she needed to be. With the 7th and 8th graders, I did the exact same workshop for both. Um, So we go over the vocabulary, the human anatomy. Then we talked about puberty, lots of the different changes in puberty. My basic message is everything, a lot of things are going to feel not normal and a lot of things are going to feel awkward and uncomfortable, and that is normal. Then we talk about bullying, discuss all the different ways for bystander intervention. Um, My biggest message is there are always more bystanders than there are bullies, and... um, and we all have a right and a, we should all have a say in what's going on about our lives um, and be able to do something about that and be active in that. Um, and then I have them all write a personal ad for friendship. Um, oh, and we also went over consent. So I gave a very broad definition of consent. I use actually the definition that scarletine.com uses for sexual consent. For 7th and 8th graders, I make it a little bit more broad. I take out the word sexual, and I basically just say consent for everything, all activity, which I think is very true. It applies to everything that we're going. Consent is constant negotiation. And I give an example of I put a big pizza. Let's say you and your friends you know, decide to get a pizza together. Maybe you change your mind. You don't want the pizza anymore because it just looks so greasy. You know, you are constantly negotiating and, se- and setting those boundaries uh, throughout the entire thing. It's not because you said yes to pizza once that you are expected to shovel it all down, right? Um, so that applies to wherever. Well, that's helpful, um, but I'm still concerned about the college, um, or excuse me, the, the, are you ready for college? Some of the, I remember from the bullet point, what if you, what if you go to parties? Uh, what can you expect once you're on campus? So things that are, um, just odd for this woman. And I think as I reflected later, no matter what you do, I think with uh, high school juniors and seniors, by that time, it's going to be really hard to get away from values. This is a person who has the imprimatur of the school saying this is a person you should listen to. This is a person you should respect. You should follow their advice. I just thought this was really odd. The parent, for whatever reasons, I believe it was her religious affiliation, did not want us to, to, to discuss those topics that, that we were going to discuss. Sally Wagonmaker is a lawyer with the conservative religious law firm, the Thomas More Society. That may sound familiar to you. In earlier episodes, we heard from Paul Linton, another Thomas More Society lawyer who advocated in favor of parental notification laws. So for Sally, this was more than just the one sex ed discussion. This is about what a school's role should be in educating children. Sally says that the curriculum undermines her family's strict religious values. And this isn't the first talk she's had trouble with. I think when my daughter was in ninth grade, there was this special session and it was going to be, I can't, I can't remember exactly what it was on. It was either tolerance for LGBT things or anti-bullying. But in any event, it was an organization called Advocates for Youth that was presenting it. And I looked them up and they were stridently um, pro-LGBT in very specific ways, which I thought was, frankly, rather biased. And so I emailed. I don't think I'd ever emailed this particular administrator before. 
But I was really pleased that they were so responsive. But this time, Sally wasn't happy with the response she got. What they told me was the show will go on. The seventh and eighth graders had their um, their uh, workshops. I begged in the email to cancel it. I asked for a meeting with Dr. Kenner. She refused, absolutely refused. That, so she's saying that she asked me for a meeting and I denied the meeting? Yes. The meeting request? Mm-hmm. That's not true. That, that's not true at all. I meet with everybody. I didn't deny a meeting request. Honest, this honestly got true. I don't have any reason to lie. I don't remember her asking for a meeting. What she asked me for was to provide her with the full transcript of what um, um, the presenter was going to present. That's what she asked me for. So the truth is somewhere in the middle here. Sally sent an email asking for a meeting later that day or towards the end of the next week. Principal Kenner responded... Unfortunately, I am very busy today with the incoming ninth graders and their parents. I will be at an educational conference next week. Please know that we will be making provisions for anyone who wants to opt out of the presentation. Information will be going out today and in the weekly newsletter. By Friday night, it was very clear that it was going to go on. Um, As an attorney, as a mother, as somebody who has um, very strong connections to a public interest law firm called Thomas More Society, it seemed very obvious and clear. As much as I would hate to do it, as much as I've never done this for any other situation, um, it seemed the only way to get their attention and to do this, to take care of this, would be to file an emergency um, court action for a restraining order to say you cannot cannot have a sex ed teacher who's not been credentialed without the sufficient notice and without the disclosure of the information. It's not right. It's illegal. And it's against Chicago Public Schools policy. So we we had the TRO, um, temporary restraining order. Um, just to, to back up a little bit, I filed the court action on Monday. I could not get a court hearing in time for Tuesday, but I sent the um, restraining order motion and complaint to Dr. Kenner. And within a few hours after that, she emailed and said she would cancel the 11th and 12th grade presentations. It was devastating, I have to be honest. Because it wasn't just about the canceled class. It got personal. There are multiple conservative websites that I was shown. One site referred to me as a vile sex columnist, and they wrote, they didn't write that I have a PhD. They did not write that I run, that I'm the owner of a dance company. What they wrote was dancer, sex educator. And I, it did not hit me. Three other people called me and said, you know, Nicolette, they are assuming, they are, they are literally, uh, giving that the, the message that you're an erotic dancer, which I have no problem with erotic dancers, but the fact that they are purposely um, trying to skew this in a way that makes it seem that I'm not qualified to teach when, when I have taught this and studied this for so many years. I've done a lot of this work. Um, I've done research on this. One of my professors wrote a book, Nancy Kendall, wrote a book specifically talking about the culture wars regarding sex education. Um, I've written about it myself in research papers and, you know, in the university. But to get it personally, I thought I'd be, I thought I wouldn't be as upset as I would, as I was about it. Um, I think I got more, I was more devastated by it because this is my high school that I was raised in. I would never, ever, ever put a person in front of our students who I felt was inappropriate. I've been principal here for 23 years. I've concluded 23 years. 
and I know what is good for our students and what is not good for our students. I would never have done that. Sally's lawsuit held some merit. Chicago public schools are supposed to vet speakers to make sure they're qualified and appropriate, and Whitney Young didn't go through the proper procedures to do that. But after the lawsuit, they did, and Nicolette was approved. Again, Joyce Kenner. But bottom line is, uh, we felt like the, the speaker that we had, had identified was an appropriate speaker. Now, subsequently, um, the speaker has been vetted by CPS, and they too have or believe that she is a quality speaker. She has the credentials to talk about sex education, period. Principal Kenner says that Nicolette will likely be presenting at Whitney Young in the future. But the wagon makers are all out of high school now, so they'll never have to hear it. These youth are, are, are becoming adults. And this parent who tried to stop this um, or who delayed this, literally their child is, is either already an adult, is already 18, or is, is, is um, going to be 18 within a couple of months and is going to be out in a college campus and have absolutely no other tools besides, I'm going to say, mainstream pornography. Nicolette always leaves time in her workshops for questions. And the questions that she's getting suggest that not all parents are supportive and some kids have a really hard time talking to their parents about these things. I had questions about abuse. Um, I had one person wrote right in um, that they were cutting themselves, that their parents were abusing them. I had a person ask, what should, what should someone do if they have an eating disorder because they are transgendered and they don't, they're so, they don't want their parents to find out because they are so anti, they think they're so, you know, against this. They're so scared for their parents to find out. The eighth graders, I had multiple youth, right, that they were really lonely and they just wanted to be friends with anyone and how could they find friends. Um, so I love these workshops because they give me an opportunity to meet and give really honest information, give really relevant, medically accurate, um, comprehensive information so that these youth make much healthier decisions for themselves, for their relationships, their bodies, and for the families that they might, you know, that they will um, potentially have in the future. And to censor that is just so uh, unbelievably harmful. If these talks aren't happening at school, where are they happening? We just we talk about all kinds of things. We've talked we have books on, you know, uh, private parts, public parts, you know, what's the doctor do and and how to help have a healthy body image. I mean, we've we've talked about it for years in a really matter of fact way. Um, we live in an inner city neighborhood on Chicago's west side. We've done that very intentionally since they were born. Um, so we've talked about death. We've talked about um, single parents. Uh, why is it that some people only have um, one parent uh, when it takes two parents to have a baby? Um, how, I remember having that conversation far earlier than I expected. Uh, when it comes to drinking, they've seen rampant alcoholism and drug abuse. So um, I, I, my son had a textbook and there were some interesting things in there. And um, when he was in ninth grade and did the health portion of that year, um, he came home and started talking about drugs. And I said, what have you learned? And he said, frankly, he said, I learned there's nine good reasons to smoke marijuana and only one reason, one bad reason. So we talked about that. So I didn't say, no, you can't have education about drug use. 
I talked about our neighborhood. I said, well, what do you see around us? He said, a lot of, I see a lot of potheads who aren't doing much of anything. I said, well, how does that make you feel about smoking pot? Not very good. I said, is it illegal? No, it's not legal. You want to do anything that's illegal? It's going to get you in trouble, keep you out of college? No, I think I want to do things that are illegal. So we had that conversation. Sex ed is really sensitive. There's um, there's tremendous faith-based aspects to it. There's tremendous values. There's tremendous implications, whether it's STDs or getting pregnant, dealing with those issues. Say your parents were so opposed to premarital sex that they had your high school's sex ed workshop shut down. Would you feel comfortable talking to them about complicated experiences like abortion? She has a kind of a personal and very political motive. And it's unfortunate because um, almost 2,000 other parents um, and, um, and specifically students were very keen on having this information. It's terribly ironic that that certain individuals want to only deal with issues when you're at the last like at the already have the most in some senses negative results when some of this could have been alleviated and I think a large majority could be alleviated by the fr- by by giving information at the front end and really being um, realistic and really being honest and comprehensive about uh, how we treat youth and, and the education that they deserve to get. I asked Sally what she thought of parental notification laws and if she thought her daughter would come to her if she needed an abortion. I am not an expert on uh, parental notification rights. I... Um do believe that abortion fundamentally is killing a baby. It is killing a human life. That is one of the worst things that any female could ever do to kill a person who is inside of her body. It is not my body, my choice. It is a person. It is an unborn person. It is a person that cannot live on its own outside the womb until a certain time, but neither can a lot of other humans who might be at the end of their life or who might be on a ventilator. So anything I would say about parental rights has to come out of that. And anything to do with sex, really, sex is procreative. I reminded Sally that people have sex without intending to procreate all the time. But then she started talking about how pro-choice people never talk about adoption. Sex between a man and a woman can result in a baby. And so for a parent not to be involved in that is, is tragic to me. I won't respond to any of the particular details. I'll only stay on the high end of this. And I speak to this um, based out of a long history of being involved with this this issue. I know it's tragic. I know it's sad. And you know what? I guess the last part I would say to that, which I never hear, or very rarely, in the pro-death, pro-abortion, pro-life debate, is adoption. I told her that I was pro-choice and I was adopted. It was a decision I immediately regretted. I'm I'm so glad. I'm so glad you are adopted. What a noble, amazing thing to acknowledge that you have a human life inside of you and you could give that baby up for adoption. 
and perhaps and, and it would be hard and it would be horrible to have to go through that as a pregnancy but wouldn't that be amazing for you and maybe and for your parents too to walk down that adoption road like you where I don't know your circumstances I was just totally taken out of the interview at this point why did I tell her that People always tell me how amazing and selfless it was for my birth mother to place me for adoption. But we don't really know anything, and these conversations draw the air out of the room. I can't see or hear anymore. I don't have any memories of the brief time I had with the person who gave birth to me. And I resent the ways in which people try to force non-existent memories into my narrative. Is it beautiful? Is it noble? I'm not sure. I think it's a lot of things. I I think it just is. I ended the interview shortly after. I wanted to stay composed, and I was feeling like I was about to fall apart. I was ashamed that something so small could burn me from the inside out. I was sure she could see the heat rising in my cheeks. I shook her hand, and she said, You really think it would have been okay for your mother to murder you in the womb? That heat was rising into my ears. Why couldn't I be more professional, more composed? I looked at the floor, took a choppy breath, and said, I just hope she had a choice, but I worry that she didn't, and I really hope she wasn't forced to have me. And she said, That's really sad for you. I put on my backpack, folded my gear, and... I just walked ahead, said it was nice to meet you or something like that, but my tone didn't reflect a pleasant goodbye. I took the rest of the afternoon off. It was a Wednesday in May, and instead of doing something fun outside, I went home and watched The Handmaid's Tale. Another bad decision. Maybe I thought it would be cathartic, but watching a very pregnant June try to escape the people who are stealing her baby was a little too much for me that day. And Sally's words just kept flashing in my head. That's really sad for you. The truth is, I am sad. But she never asked me about it. No one ever talks to me about it, except to tell me how good and selfless my birth mother must be. What I should have said to Sally was, it is sad that we never hear about birth mother's experiences. We just assume or tell people what to think. With Justice Kennedy's retirement, everyone is talking about what's going to happen if Roe is overturned. Are we just going to force people to give birth? But the truth is, some people are forced to give birth against their will now. And teenagers are the most vulnerable because in many states, they don't get to make abortion decisions for themselves. I feel like he might have wanted to keep it as a consequence, one of those punishment things. Punishment for you? As like a, a lesson learned. Some teens have had enough. And they're taking on these laws one neighborhood at a time. But more on that next time. Choiceless is a production of Rewire.News. We're the leading nonprofit journalism outlet devoted to reporting on reproductive and sexual health rights and justice. To stay up to date with our award-winning journalism, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Choiceless is created and produced by me, Jen Stanley. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Douglas Helsel. Mark Folletti is our executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Additional production help on this season by Lauren Gutierrez and Saskia Henneke. If you like this series, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more people find Choiceless. Thanks for listening.